Hey everyone, we continue our read through the New Testament. Today we are in Revelation 12. Now, Revelation 12 begins the third cycle of visions that we get in Revelation, which takes us from Revelation 12 to Revelation 14. And this cycle really lays out the, the picture of cosmic spiritual conflict and the two sides that are a part of it. It lays out the uh, histories of very key symbolic characters, the dragon, the woman, the beast, the false prophet, the 144,000, the angelic announcers, and even the Son of Man. And unlike the, the cycles before it, the seven seals and the seven trumpets, these visions have no explicit numbering. Yet, like the preceding cycles, they will end once again with the consummation, the second coming of Christ, we will see in verses 14 through 20 of chapter 14. This cycle depicts in depth the nature of spiritual conflict, the reality that there are two clear sides, those who are with the Lamb, the Son, who will rule the nations, and those who are on the side of the dragon. And These are the two sides for which all of humanity is divided upon, those in the Lamb or those with the dragon. And only those with the Lamb will be victorious. So with that little introduction of this new cycle that we're in, let's look at the first six verses here of chapter 12. And we'll make a few uh, comments on it. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with sun with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Okay, so here we have... Another picture that is full of symbolism. And the great problem, right, with symbolism in a lot of ways is the problem of identification. You know, because who you identify a symbol to be will radically alter the way in which you interpret the text. And so when we think about symbolism, especially apocalyptic imagery, which is what Revelation is, an apocalyptic, right, we have to be careful to let Scripture interpret the symbolism. Otherwise, we can just make it say whatever we want. Now, when we think about the woman here, what helps us give identification is actually what is said about her child. It says that he will be a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was called to God and to his throne. Now, that helps us there because we clearly see that this child is the Messiah, that this is Jesus that is in reference to, as he utilizes Psalm 2, that royal messianic psalm, a picture of the Christ who will rule the nations. This is the one who is given birth. This is the child. And so that gives us a little clue to help us identify the woman. Now, some have immediately just ran to, well, then it's got to be Mary. The woman has to be Mary here. And the problem with that is that that really is a bit hasty, and it doesn't fully understand the depth of symbolism that is in pictured here in Revelation 12. We have to remember that Israel was referred to as a daughter, as the bride of Yahweh, right? And this picture here of the woman 
is a picture of the faithful Israel. We're not talking about the a people group who were who had abandoned God and left him and, and were were being wicked in their ways, hypocritical and all these other things of which the uh, the prophets so constantly railed against. We're talking about the faithful remnant to which the prophets belonged to. That faithful remnant which was to remain pure and holy, set apart for the Lord, his true covenantal people, whose hearts were were all for him, right? Not merely just go through the motions, but whose hearts belonged to the Lord. That's the picture of the woman here. And where Mary does come in is Mary, the reason why she is a, a virgin who is seen as, as faithful to the Lord is that that is a picture of what Israel was supposed to be. A faithful virgin betrothed to the Lord. And that's what Mary is pictured as and that's why she fits so perfectly the symbol that God is iterating as it is Israel who gives birth to the male child. That was Israel's sole and primary purpose, was to bring the one who would be a blessing to all the nations into the world. That is why Abraham was set apart. It was through his line that God would establish a line to bring a blessing to all the nations, which is this male child, the son. This woman who now takes center stage is the priestly kingdom, the holy nation referred to in Exodus 19.6. She represents the entire story of God's people chosen to carry forward his plans for the nations and indeed for his whole creation. And that's why she is pictured with the sun, moon, and stars uh, around her robe, her footstool, and her crown. That's why, too, the forces that range themselves against the creator God are determined to take her out and her child. Finally, with a swish of his majestic tail, we see the the dragon appearing on the stage. A villain who we quickly learn stands behind all the trouble that we've seen in the earlier chapters. The dark secret is revealed. The real problem is identified. The curtain has risen on the drama within the drama. The central action which forms now the central scene in the whole book. The woman and her child are carrying the purpose of God forward in the world. And the dragon is doing his best to snuff out those purposes before they can get underway. With the unveiling of the gospel of the Lion of Lamb and Lamb, there goes as well the unveiling of the ultimate mystery of evil. The second image behind the woman in this passage may also be Eve, um, the original mother of all human life, because it was Eve who, after all, was told that it was her seed that would crush the serpent's head. But ultimately, these two identities go together. The woman is Israel. She is, for that reason, the one in whom God purposes for humanity to be uh, God's purposes for humanity are to be realized, and that purpose includes, as a central and necessary part of the agenda, the crushing of the ultimate power of of evil. The destroyer is to be destroyed. The dragon himself will be more fully revealed later on when the mystery of his seven heads and ten horns will be made clear. This All this language comes out of the book of Daniel. But already, we see that he is a figure of inconsiderable power. He himself is, after all, in heaven, verse 3 says. And as in the Old Testament, the adversary, the Satan, for this is who he is, as we will see in verse 9, is part of the heavenly court, who rebels against the Creator's plans for his world. This is, to be sure, another great mystery. But the result of this rebellion are not in doubt. Attacks from all sides on the people of God in the years leading up to the birth of Messiah 
are followed at the birth itself by an attempted attack from the would-be king of Jews, Herod. Right? This is the picture there of the dragon looking to devour the child at birth. This is a picture of Advent. This is a picture of the Christmas story here in a very remarkable way. Remember, John doesn't give us a birth narrative of Christ, but in here he does. He does in Revelation. And this is not a common nativity scene, as you would see a picture of, of Mary with literally the, the dragon waiting, right? The dragon waiting to devour. And that is a picture of what Herod does in seeking to have all of the two-year-olds and younger boys killed in the region. But nevertheless, the dragon loses. In a remarkable compression of the entire story of Jesus' life, the child is snatched away to God and to his throne. In other words, Jesus himself wins the victory through his death, resurrection, and ascension, and is therefore no longer vulnerable to anything the dragon can do. The woman, meanwhile, the faithful people of God, remain in danger. But this, again, can scarcely refer to just Mary. And at this point, it can't refer either to just the ethnic people of Israel. As is true all through the book, John believes that since Jesus is Israel's Messiah, Israel is redefined around him so that the woman who now flees to the desert to be looked after by God for a temporary period must be the church itself. Once more, John is telling a story in which his readers discover that they are not merely spectators, but they are now actually participants. They are part of the woman, part of the family who are to be looked after, even though, as we shall see, the dragon is now pursuing them. The idea of the woman fleeing in the desert is probably yet another reference to the Exodus story, where the people of Israel escape from the tyrant Pharaoh by going into, into the wilderness, and they will face fresh challenges in the wilderness, but yet in the wilderness, what is, what is happening? God preserves them and guides them in the wilderness. In their journey, God protects them even as they seek to be assailed by the enemy there. They will be victorious because God is on their side. We see now this war, this picture of this war in greater detail in verses 7 through the end of the chapter. Now war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon who thrown down the, and, and threw down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, this deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of, of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. 
The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here we see something absolutely remarkable, right? We see that there is a war in heaven, an alarming enough concept, where Michael, the great archangel of Daniel 10, summons all of his angels to fight against the dragon and his angels. If we are able to give this any meaning in our imaginations, it must be that, that the moral and political struggles of which we are aware, the battles between good and evil, between justice and injustice, which goes on in this life, reflect a more primeval battle, which has taken place in the spiritual realm. Michael has won through the power and the authority of God himself, and the dragon has lost. This loss means that he is thrown down to the earth, ejected from heaven altogether. But wait a minute. The song of victory which follows this great event gives credit for the victory not to Michael, but to God's people on earth. It says, they conquered him says the loud voice from heaven, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, because they did not love their lives even unto death. Verse 11. So who defeated the dragons? Was it Michael or was it the martyrs? Well, in a sense, it was both. The heavenly reality of the victorious battle is umbilically joined to the earthly reality of the martyr's death. As followers of the Lamb, they believe that they have already been saved by His blood and that his self-giving to death is the pattern which they must now follow, and that is what wins the battle. The dragon is, after all, the accuser. The early church learned to see this supernatural accusing activity standing not far behind all the accusations that were leveled against them. Such accusations included informal ones, whispered by their critical neighbors, wondering why these people weren't joining in with the usual pagan festivities, especially of the imperial religion and the more formal ones brought by the authorities, carrying an official penalty, often death, for those who did not practice. All sorts of slanders and lies were told about the early church. The Christians learned to see themselves for what they were accusations of, from the father of lies himself. Once again, John is positioning his hearers on the map of the great cosmic drama. They are to know and celebrate the great victory which has already been won. The accuser has no place anymore in heaven because the death of Jesus has nullified the charges which, which the celestial director of prosecution would otherwise bring. It's why Paul will write in Romans 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the accuser has been thrown down by the victory of the Lamb. Nevertheless, He will do his best in the time remaining to continue to attack the bride, to attack the woman who has fled to the wilderness, yet even though, as in Exodus 19, God has given her eagle's wings so that she could fly away. What follows only just a voice descending into a cosmic cosmic car chase in a way, almost a comic strip vision, as the dragon spits out a jet of water like a river to carry the woman off. The earth then opens up its mouth to swallow up the river. The woman escapes, and the dragon, angry, turns his attention elsewhere, precisely to the woman's children, further defined as those who keep God's commands and the testimonies of Jesus. In other words, once again, you too are a part of this drama. 
Don't be surprised that the dragon is out to get you with more of his foul but powerful accusations sped out like a flood. Trust that the God of creation will look after you. It's fascinating that it is the earth that comes to the woman's rescue. Creation itself is shown to be on the side of God and his people rather than working alongside the dragon. You must expect, though, there is more to come. More persecution, more attack, more false accusation. Woe to the earth and sea, verse 12 says, because the devil has come down to you in a great anger, knowing that he only has a short time. The decisive battle has been won. It is finished. Christ defeated Satan at the cross, and the devil knows it. But the basic nature of of accuser is now driving him more and more frantically to the attack. Because he is the embodiment of pride. And pride leads to a great foolishness. To even in the midst of knowing you've lost. To continue to try to act against it anyways. Here we see the fact that the very nature and wickedness of the dragon himself. Will be the very means that leads to his own downfall. Indeed, pride comes before the fall. His goal to slander, to vilify, to deny the truth of what the Creator God and His Son, the Lamb, have accomplished and are accomplishing is seen in His continual attempts to try to go after the victorious people of God, the faithful woman. This is the ongoing battle in which we as Christians are engaged. It's why Paul says that we do not war against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities of darkness. The picture that John has sketched in chapter 12 is to encourage and warn his readers and all those who even today read his book that this is just the opening scene. More is to come. The dragon ends up standing on the sand beside the sea. And the sea, as all ancient Jews knew, was the dark place of which monsters might emerge. And as we will see in chapter 13, they indeed merge, but take heart. The lion and the lamb, Jesus Christ, is greater than all that rises in the army of the dragon. So take heart in the victory you have and be vigilant in the spiritual battles you will face for standing and being and connecting with Christ and Christ alone. God bless.